grab a Bible and open it up to Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, we're going to get to Hebrews 3 here in just a bit. George Santayana said that those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And any student of history knows this to be true. Human history is littered with examples of those who fail to learn from past examples. And one of the most famous examples of this phenomenon uh, revolves around two of the most infamous men in history. The first one is Napoleon. Not that Napoleon, that one, the shorter one. Uh, in June 1812, Napoleon Bonaparte decided to invade Moscow. He sent 600,000 men into Russia, only to be greeted by typhus-carrying lice who began to take a toll on his forces. And despite all that, a weakened French army reached Moscow on September 14th, declaring victory in a, in a largely vacated city. It was the return trip, however, that did Napoleon's men in. On, on the way back to France, temperatures plummeted to negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit, freezing soldiers' lips together and killing thousands of horses. And history tells us that as few as 10,000 men ultimately made it back home. As few as 10,000. Fast forward to 1941 as Hitler's army began, to, uh, began its own June invasion of Russia, Operation Barbarossa. And they, believing victory would only take a few months, and despite owning several books about Napoleon, the Nazi leader sent his troops across Europe and into battle. And once again, the foreign force was not prepared for the brutal Russian winter. Plummeting temperatures and a lack of warm coats and hats took a toll on Germany's forces, and many men returned home without ears, noses, fingers, and even eyelids. That's nasty. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. As God guides us on this journey, as he shows us the next waypoint on the map, he doesn't want us to repeat the mistakes of the past. And in a sense, that's the lesson that Hebrews 3 and 4 is going to teach us. The beginning of Hebrews 3 starts with a therefore. And whenever we see that in scripture, we have, we have to ask the question, what is it there for? So to give you some context, the argument we see throughout Hebrews chapter 1 and 2 is that Jesus is greater than, well, everything. Jesus has defeated death and is over all things. Last week we said that your Bible is all about Jesus. From cover to cover, it's him. And, and that's what Hebrews is, is saying. It, it, it's saying that it's all about Jesus, that Jesus is the centerpiece of life. So in light of that, Therefore, now we're actually going to start in verse 7 of Hebrews, which just continues this thought. Hebrews 3, 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, 
whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And the writer of Hebrews teaches us a lesson from the past so that we might have a better future. And in order to learn that lesson, we need to go back to the Old Testament book of Numbers to see what happened after the nation of Israel fled Egypt. So back in the Old Testament, uh, the book of Exodus, the Israelites, we see that they spend nearly 400 years as slaves for the Pharaoh of Egypt. And they cried out to God for deliverance, and God sent Moses to confront Pharaoh. When Pharaoh wouldn't listen, God unleashed a series of 10 plagues on Egypt. Pharaoh finally had enough, and he sent Moses, he sent Moses and the Israelites on their way. And then Pharaoh changed his mind, and he pursued them. And God opened up the Red Sea, and he let Israel pass through on dry ground. And the Israelites, they go on to experience God doing many, many more miraculous things. They knew what their God was capable of. And then the time comes for them to actually go into the promised land. There's this land that God had promised them. He said it would be flowing with milk and honey. So Moses, he's pretty excited. He sends 12 spies out to see the land. He wants to know, he wants to know how wonderful it is. So he says, go check it out. And it's kind of a good news, bad news situation. And in Numbers 13, verse 27, we read, And they told him, We came to the land which you sent us, and it flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. They started with the good news, right? The promised land lives up to the hype. It's awesome. It's flowing with milk and with honey. This is everything God promised it would be. The good news is really good. But the bad news, bad news is really bad. Uh, the people who are there, they're pretty strong. You know, there's big people, there's big cities, and there's a lot of them. We just can't beat them. And as you might imagine, this doesn't make God very happy. He has proven himself faithful time and again. He has done great wonders for them already. And then the fact that they won't listen now is nuts. And they make it worse. Numbers 14, 3. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Now they're just whining. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. This is insane. Egypt was the land of slavery. The Egyptians beat them. They were slaves. and They want to go back. They're so afraid to take what is right in front of them, what God has promised to them, and instead, they start to long for, for what's behind. They want to go back to how things used to be. You know, we, around here at Broadway, we talk a lot about hope. And this is the opposite of that. Hope looks forward. Hope is about the future. And this is people living in and longing for the past. We read that Moses intercedes for them. He pleads with God to forgive them. And then God decrees that the Israelites who refuse to believe they're, gonna, they're never going to make it into the promised land. 
So that means that all Israelites, 20 and older, are going to wander in the desert for 40 years and die. And then when they die, the next generation is going to get to go into the promised land. I mean, can you even, can you even imagine? These people saw the 10 plagues. They saw the parting of the Red Sea. God led them by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night and a lot more than that. And yet, they still didn't trust that he would do what he had promised to do. So this brings us to Hebrews 3.15. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Hebrews is telling us, don't harden your hearts like the Israelites. They saw God do amazing things and they still longed for the past. You've, got, you've seen God do even more amazing things through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is now over all things. So Hebrews is telling us, don't follow their example. So how do we avoid hardening our hearts? How do we keep ourselves from repeating history? How do we fight the desire in ourselves to just ease back into the rut that we often find ourselves in? Well, Hebrews 4 helps us with that. Hebrews 4.11, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We strive to enter that rest. That rest for the Israelites was the promised land. And the rest for us here is referring to our hope in Christ. Our rest is in him. And we strive to cling to what he has done for us. And verse 12 offers support for verse 11. So that we can strive, so that no one may fall, the word of God is living and active. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So how do we hear his voice? Well, we can certainly hear God in multiple ways, but the primary way, the primary way is through scripture. It's through the Bible. The word of God is living and active. Last week, I said that the New Testament letters or epistles, Hebrews is part of that. They're not about how to live a moral life, but it's about a relationship with Jesus and the implications that has on your life. When you read the Bible through that lens that, that this book is all about Jesus and it's a way to, to deepen my relationship with him, what happens is that the scriptures speak into your life and change you. Your Bible is convicting. Uh, your Bible convicts. It shows you where you fall short. And through it, God shows you the person he wants you to be. He shows you the next waypoint on your journey. And this requires a relationship with him. Conversely, reading the Bible uh, without that relationship will feel empty. And it won't lead to healthy changes in your life. When you feel convicted to change, uh, your motivation is, is going to be guilt rather than joy. Your motivation is going to be obligation rather than obedience. And it's probably... The change is probably not going to last too long. My marriage and being a dad has taught me a lot about God and my relationship with him. When I tell my kids uh, that they need to change a certain behavior, it's because I love them. It's because I'm older than them. I'm wiser, probably. 
and I know that if they keep doing A, B, or C, it's gonna, it's not gonna go well. It's gonna have a negative effect on them uh, or the people around them. And I've either experienced those negative things myself or I know someone who has. I want them to be spared from that. They know that, that I love them and that won't change. I hope so. So even if they don't like what I have to say, there's still security there. There's, there's trust. And it's the same with God. When a behavior or anything, or anything is having a negative effect on you or the people around you, you can rest assured that God's going to have something to say about it. You might not like it, but you can trust that, that he loves you and that God wants good things for your life. Now, before we go any further, I don't want you to misunderstand me. This change in behavior is not so that we can somehow earn salvation or God's favor. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This change in behavior is the natural outcome when you put your faith in Jesus. You change. This process is also never over while we walk this earth. So this applies to everybody. There's always this pull towards sin. So there's always a next step we need to take. There's always a next waypoint. So how does this work? How does the Bible convict? How does it help us avoid hardening our hearts and instead move forward in our relationship with Jesus? Well, I want you to remember three things today. The first one is this, assess. The Bible convicts, convicts by assessing. You have to allow the Bible to take an assessment of your heart. Verse 12 of Hebrews 4, For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Rather than discerning the thoughts and intentions, the NIV version of the Bible says that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And that's not discernment or judgment as in condemnation. It's an assessment. It's like when I talk to Todd across the hall of our offices and say, hey man, what do you think of that episode of The, the Mandalorian last Friday? I'm not saying... I want to hear your condemnation of The Mandalorian. By the way, Todd would never do that because that's a great show. So I'm not asking for condemnation, but I'm saying, what did you think? What is your assessment? Was it good? Was it bad? And the Word of God assesses the thoughts and intentions of your heart. It discovers whether they are good or whether they are bad. Now, it's difficult to open up and let our hearts be assessed, right? Uh, this is the primary reason that people don't read the Bible. They don't like what it says. Sometimes it hurts. That means that I have to admit that I don't have it all figured out on my own. I have to admit that, that I need help. It means I have to admit that there might be something off about my heart. The Bible talks a lot about our hearts. Jesus said this in Luke 6, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. The Word of God is living and active. And we don't need to wait for all of the junk in our hearts to come out in our words and actions. We can have our hearts assessed by the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and maybe avoid hurting ourselves and others. Again, this all comes down to your relationship with Jesus. That's critical. When we are assessed without a relationship, it is the worst. I mean, imagine being told your flaws by a stranger or even somebody you don't really know and how that would go over. 
It would be terrible. You'd say, man, I didn't invite you to do that. Get out of here. Out of my face. Uh, now imagine being told flaws by someone you know, love, and trust. That's different, right? In that instance, it leads you to ask the question, what does love require of me? What does this relationship mean to me? So number one is assess. You have to allow the Bible to assess your heart. Number two is accept. Accept what the Bible says about your heart. There has to be this light bulb moment of, of yeah, that's right, I need, I need to change this. James 4.17 says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And this is where a lot of us get stuck. We either never accept conviction when it comes, or it, it takes us a long time and a heartache to accept conviction. In AA, there's a 12-step approach to recovery. These 12 steps are definitely effective. They've been proven over time. And the first step is honesty. Admitting that you are powerless over your addiction. Accepting that there's a problem. So whatever it is for you, whatever it is for you, whatever God is showing you that's in your heart, accept it. Don't harden your heart. Let the Bible assess. Accept your conviction. And then the third thing is act. Act on what you know. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So act. Back to Hebrews 4, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Verse 11 gives us the action. Let us strive. Faith is not passive. It's active. And if we don't want history to repeat itself, if we don't want to harden our hearts, we must strive to enter that rest. That rest is, is keeping our eyes on Jesus. That rest for us is, is our hope in him. And this isn't a, a pull yourself up by your bootstraps sort of action, you know, just do your best. He helps us. Ian started this series a few weeks ago in 2 Peter 1 and said, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. His power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. By his power, we have what we need. By his power and his promises, we can escape sin. There's rescue. A Bible word that we could use for act is repent. And repentance literally means to turn, to turn from sin and sometimes this striving means to literally turn and stop doing something, to, to stop it. To choose obedience to God rather than our own desires. And to rely or to, to rest in his power to help you. Years and years ago, I was at a, a church service with someone very close to me. And I'm not going to go into specific details, but this person uh, took issue with what was preached. Now, Ian was the one preaching, so I mean, I can understand taking issue, right? Just kidding. This person had been following Jesus for a long time, and we had a couple conversations about the message. My friend decided to take the week and study that part of scripture, and they got back with me into the week. I'll never forget what they said. They said, I realized that Ian was just preaching what was in the Bible. He wasn't sharing his opinion. And so I realized that I didn't have an issue with what Ian said, but with what God said. And my friend did all three things. They let the Bible assess their heart. They accepted what it said. 
And then they chose to act on that knowledge. And it made all the difference. Sometimes we are shown character flaws and we have to act on that daily. It's not something that we can just stop doing and it's done. We have to act daily. One of the things that has been assessed in my heart is insecurity. God showed me that years ago. I've continued to struggle with it. And it it manifests itself in different ways and at odd times. And it's something that I know can have a profound effect on me and the people around me. And so I have to strive to rest in him daily. I have to strive to rest in the knowledge that, that I am his child and that I can overcome insecurity by his power. That has made such a huge difference in my life. I'm not, the, I'm not the same person. I would be so different if it weren't for God's power in my life over my sin. When I was in my early 20s, I read a book by a pastor named Louis Giglio, and it was a book about worship. And he said that, that worship is revelation and response. And that's something that has stuck with me through the years. Uh, the revelation is that we see who God is and what he has done, and then we have the opportunity to respond to that. And the right response is worship. Louis said in the book that, that worship is both personal and corporate, that, that when we gather together, that's the corporate experience, we are reminded of who God is and what he's done. And we respond together in worship and with praise. That's what happens when we sing. The songs we sing remind us of who God is and what he's done. So we respond in worship. And it happens personally. When we see who our God is, our sin is exposed. And our response should be worship. Now, worship is an act of, is the act of ascribing worth to something. So when you read your Bible, and when you're faced with those three steps we talked about, the question you need to ask yourself is this. Is Jesus worth more than my sin? Is Jesus worth more than fill in the blank, whatever that is. And here's the good news. It doesn't matter how many days that answer has been no. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. What matters is today. Today, you can say yes. Today, you can also make that decision for the first time. It starts by believing that Jesus died for your sins and rose again, confessing that that he is Lord Uh, You have to repent. You have to turn from sin. Identify with his death and resurrection by being immersed in the waters of baptism. And if you'd like to talk to someone about this, man, we would love to connect with you. Send us a message through our website. Let us know on on our Connect forum, on the watch page, and and we'll get back with you uh, this week. So knowing that your Bible is convicting, when you open it, let it be more than just a time to learn some stuff, but let it be an invitation. When you open your Bible, invite Jesus to assess your heart. Accept what it says, accept what he shows you, and then by his power, act. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for choosing to love us despite our sin, despite our shame, for sending your son to die for us. God, we are so thankful. And in light of that, God, help us, remind us daily not to harden our hearts, but God, to look to you 
God, to lead us and to guide us and to show you who you want us to be. God, we're thankful that you want good things for us. So as we read our Bibles, God, as we, as we open up and allow you to assess what's in our hearts, God, would you reveal those things to us? And God, would you help us to accept what you say? And God, would you give us the boldness and the courage to act by your power? We love you and thank you in Jesus' name.